Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSB Magazine. Every company has a story to tell, from the small startup to the large enterprise, and everything in between. This is one of them. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Chomp, chomp, chomp. <laughs> right. How is that you always surprise me on the way that you start? I mean, I should be, after thousands of podcasts we've done together, I'm always smiling and be like, how is it going to start this one? And it's kind of scary. Myself, it's I, I have scary. no idea what I'm going to say. Until, <laughs> until but, I, say Marco. <laughs> I know. I think I've developed some kind of like quick reaction time on... <laughs> On, on you know the direction that you're going to take on on this one but i know what you said right now that chum 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 is referring to, to the first conversation and the metaphor that we that we use when we talk to to gabby and uh, that was part one of this uh, story with uh, with imperva so sean uh explain our audience what this yes. chump chump is i'll, I'll do my best <laughs> to <laughs> relate this the chum chum chop back to the uh the first episode <laughs> so we uh we 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 have a story in chum chum chomp that we covered in the first one it's all related to log 4j where it's it's basically the anniversary you're roughly the anniversary when many many people uh app app dev and devops and DevSecOps folks uh spent their time around the holidays and the new year dealing with uh patching and uh, we, in our first conversation Gabby let us know that that around 27, 28% of companies actually patched <laughs> and many didn't or left them open. So we're, we're still, still in an interesting spot with this. And uh, we're going to continue the conversation, Marco, of log4j, of the logs rolling down the river and the chomp, chomp, chomp as the, uh, the security beavers taking a bite out of cyber, cyber bots. <laughs> If people listen to the first conversation, they know that we ended up, at least I ended up imagining that the second one was going to be from a different perspective. And the perspective was that uh, Peter, which is on with, with us now, it's actually looking at the, the flow of the water in the water, <laughs> in the business and how they have been reacting right. to that. So let's keep with that uh, river, uh, very Zen, very Buddhist uh, reference here. And uh, <laughs> And let's see how Peter is going to take it from there. But first, I would say, let's do the owner, Sean, to introduce him. Yes, Peter. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. Sean, Marco, it's a pleasure to be here. We're, uh, we're great to be on this log ride with you. Not as a practitioner, thankfully, <laughs> from my perspective, but more as uh, someone who can help, help us understand the realities of what Log4j means and it meant to many organizations and hopefully how we can uh, help them overcome some challenges that they're probably many are still facing. So a few words uh, about what your role is at Imperva and, uh, and uh, what you're up to. Sure. So uh, my name is Peter Klemek. I'm a director of technology at Imperva. Um, I've been with the company now for about seven years. And uh, prior to working for Imperva, I actually worked in the financial services organization, uh, building out an application security department and really kind of living a lot of these battles uh, that all, all of our customers basically faced. 
Uh, and so now with my current role at Imperva, I, I really consult with our customers all around the globe and really help them to better understand and identify how they can improve their overall app, uh, application security practices to be able to deal with these types of issues. Perfect. So I am curious to take it with the same question that we asked at the beginning of the first episode of this, the first part of this story with, with Imperva, which is, was Log4j really as bad as it seems to be at the beginning? And was the picture really as bad as they painted it? You know, I'm going to go with yes. Um, and in particular, I, I think this is a vulnerability where we, when we first heard that it was Log4j that was impacted, um, I, I remember actually getting the call from my boss, uh, who's our CTO, and he told me, uh, and it was one of those things of, I could not imagine a worse library to have a vulnerability in. And it wasn't just the severity of the vulnerability. It's really just how ubiquitous Log4j is. Every single Java developer in the world knows what Log4j is, and they've probably used Log4j. And for every enterprise that has Java systems, which is pretty much to say every single one of them, they probably had Log4j running in their organization. Even if they were a .NET shop, they probably had software that was relying on Log4j. And so I think from an overall perspective, it, you know, it definitely warranted the hype and everything else that really came from it. And just the exploitability of it was really, really massive. Gabby mentioned the term shadow API. And I've heard of many shadow things in IT, including just the general shadow IT. But... That was an interesting term that I hadn't hadn't come across before. And the way you're describing Log4j is that it, it's something that exists in pretty much every organization. Does, it, does that also mean it's something organization? Is it something they actually say, we're planning and therefore we need Java and Log4j to do it? Or Log4j comes with it because that's the logging piece of the thing we're doing. <laughs> kind of describe that scenario for us. Yeah, I think you've got really two different perspectives to look at it here. Um, the first one is really when you're dealing with software that you yourself as the organization are building. Uh, and so for any sort of an enterprise that's developing Java systems um, and uh, distributed systems in Java in particular, uh, probably one of the biggest things that they need is the ability to log, but they also need to be able to ship those logs somewhere. And so software libraries like Log4j really simplify that. They have lots of appenders that let you really kind of integrate with standard ways of being able to send that data out. And so it really kind of just becomes really that de facto choice, I think, for a lot of uh, developers. Now, the flip side of that is if it's not software that you're developing, if it's software that you're bringing into your organization, effectively commercial off-the-shelf software, then you're really at the mercy of what the vendor chose to develop their software in, in terms of the libraries and frameworks. And ultimately, you don't have any control over that. It's just really something that you're deploying in your environment. And so for most organizations, they really have to kind of look at it from the, both perspectives of just not only their own software, but also what are you bringing into your environment? May this be the, the reason why there is still, according to the research that we're looking at with Gabby on the first part, the reason why there is so much unpatched business in this regard? Or, or do you think there is another maybe more, I don't know, systemic issue here? 
Yeah, I, I'm just I'm guessing here. I don't have any data to back this up, but I'm willing to guarantee that that's exactly what it is. I, you know, and really, when when I heard that stat from Gabby, it was I, I kind of laughed to myself because I think what we saw was a lot of organizations really ruthlessly prioritized their external facing systems in terms of what they patched. So if it was exposed to the internet, they really prioritized having patches deployed for those systems. Um, but ultimately, we know that it only makes up a small portion of really all of the IT infrastructure that an organization has. And so the internal applications that they have, things that they don't directly expose to the internet, but are still indeed vulnerable, uh, those systems probably largely were deprioritized in their patching urgency. And so ultimately, many of them probably still aren't patched today. And unfortunately, as a industry, a lot of organizations still kind of have that mindset of hard on the outside, uh, gooey and squishy on the inside uh, for their infrastructure and what it really looks like. So that's that's probably the first part of it. But then the second one, and this is really, I think, where you've got that really long tail of vulnerabilities, that's going to be that commercial off-the-shelf software. Because really, in a lot of cases, you don't have a good idea of what's actually running in those environments. If, if it's an internal piece of software, you're probably using an SDLC process. You've got your you know, various SAS and DAS scanners, and you can go and actually look at the source code and you can look at things. But if you're buying software from a vendor, you have no idea what they've put in there. And a lot of times that, that software just does not get patched at the same rate that internal software will. Hmm. And, and you said industry there, so it kind of blink a, a light in my head at were some industries readier than other or some got more affected than other because of the supply chain or because their industry require a little bit more of a strict uh, you know, control on what's going on in the in the back end? Yeah, certainly. I, you know, for me, when I look at Log4j, I actually I like going back to the struts vulnerability back in 2017. The, the struts 2, you know, was kind of one of the first very major uh, vulnerabilities, supply chain vulnerabilities that the world really came across. And what I saw when I was working with customers on mitigation is the organizations that went through and they lived through struts, uh, which also was Java for the record too, um, the organizations that really had to deal with the struts vulnerabilities, they came up with playbooks, they came up with procedures to go and mitigate these types of vulnerabilities more, better and faster in the future. And ultimately, I think by those organizations that previously learned, they had a leg up. They were able to make sure that they could actually get the systems patched as quickly as they needed to. They made sure that they had a defense in depth strategy so they could go and shut down any sort of uh, other types of uh, exploit mechanisms that might exist. And that, I think, is what really helped to blunt the impact of the Log4j vulnerability as a whole. And Gabby shared, I'm not going to recap them here, but she shared a few things that research showed where there was some activity before uh, an attempt to exploit and then and then post-exploitation, some, some activity as well. And I'm wondering how organizations can kind of use that, that broader picture, not just to identify an attack against an open or a vulnerable API like uh, Log4j, but perhaps to say, okay, if, if we can spot these signs early, we can then pay attention and, and look for activity that might be malicious. Or if we, if we have these controls and other countermeasures in place outside of patching, 
even if we do see a sign of, of an attack or an attempt to, to compromise, we're still okay because we don't, the app, I'll say the word app sandboxed or the, the network segmented or whatever. So kind of the before and after around Log4j, what can organizations kind of do for that? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I think there is something that's really important uh, that some organizations definitely learn, but it's kind of got lost a little bit in the noise of everything else. And that's while the vulnerability uh, was publicly released, I think it was on a Thursday night. One of the more interesting things is when we did go back and look at some of the data, we did find some evidence that attacks were exploited earlier than that. Um, and there were attempts to exploit that earlier. And so uh, there is, there was generally a lead time, and I, I know a couple other security organizations or vendors also identified similar things. Um, there is the degree that ultimately this was a zero day. It was something that was exploited uh, preemptively. Uh, and we did also get some anecdotal reports from uh, some other organizations that had very, very high levels of security controls in place that they did see attempts to exploit this vulnerability. And so I think that's one of the things that we do need to be conscious of is, you know, even though there was a big, big effort to try to get this everything patched very, very quickly and early on, you still do need all of these other controls in place to be able to provide a measure of time and be able to effectively prevent instances where these attacks are going to be first identified. So the drill worked, <laughs> the fire drill of the, of the first one, the strut was a big lesson for what was going to come after. But those that were not prepared at the time, was there some kind of mitigation that worked better than other to, to react in a better and more efficient way? Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of take you through the, the four main ways that we saw organizations mitigate this vulnerability. Um, the first and foremost is, uh, and of course, you know, we're a web application firewall, web application API protection company, but WAFs were, I think, one of the critical mitigation tools that were really deployed across every organization that we talked to, uh, whether you were using ours or you were using someone else's. Um, WAF is just one of those technologies that's ubiquitous now. Everyone's using it, and it does provide the most effective mechanism to at least provide an early level of mitigation against this. They're not perfect. Um, we saw very, very quickly with Log4j that there were lots of variants to this vulnerability. Uh, just the nature of the way that the vulnerability could really kind of be embedded in any HTTP header or payload or parameter, uh, it, it made it a lot more challenging, I think, to mitigate using those technologies. But at the end of the day, it did provide at least a measure of uh, protection, at least against a lot of the run-of-the-mill attackers, the ones that were really kind of just doing the spray and pray, looking for anything vulnerable that they could find. Uh, now, I do want to call out here, though, that, uh, you know, uh, Gabby had mentioned before APIs and some of the challenges with APIs, and we talked a little bit about shadow APIs. Uh, one thing that I do think is actually quite important here is there is a big difference between a web application firewall and a web application and API protection solution. Um, and in particular, I, this will be probably for the geekier people on the line here listening, uh, but when you have developers that are writing and building APIs using uh, languages and protocols like gRPC or they're using GraphQL, they're not just building standard SOAP or REST-based APIs, 
uh, that does introduce a level of complexity and challenge into mitigation, uh, especially with things like gRPC, because effectively now you're looking at binary uh, protobufs that are going and being sent over HTTP2, and the majority of WAFs on the market are actually blind to that. And so there is a, a challenge, I think, that organizations do have of being able to keep pace with their development teams and protecting everything that they have in their environment and not just blindly putting technology out there. I'll pause with that, and then I can go into some of the other mitigation features that we saw. Well, I want to dig into that a little bit more. Um, so let, let's speak to app dev and maybe DevOps. So I did this a little bit with with Gabby as well. So kind of kind of strip away the security folks who might not understand the security aspects of a WAF and WAF API. So for the engineers that are building these things, describe to them how what you do and what WAFs with API protection does to help them have more secure apps <laughs> that their companies are using. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty, for us, basically, you can think of it as a inbound filter to all of your web requests. Um, so when a, a request comes into your production application, uh, we're basically inspecting the content, the payloads of that content or of all the requests uh, for any sort of malicious payloads. Uh, and so the inspection itself can be as basic and as simple as just looking for common attack signatures, uh, which is really still one of the most effective and uh, common ways that uh, known CVEs are identified and detected uh, in any sort of web payloads and requests. And, and this is how a lot of uh, WAF vendors will go and, and mitigate attacks. Uh, but it can be also be more complex attacks. It's uh, things like account takeover and some of the other types of attacks that are more targeting the business logic of the application, um, things that you're not actually going to be able to prevent directly in code itself. Um, those are the instances where a, a you know, sophisticated WAF or WAP solution is going to be able to use more machine learning models to identify instances where you have more fraud being targeted towards your application. Uh, bots are another common use case for it. So it, it really kind of runs the, the gamut of different mechanisms. But I think one thing to really kind of emphasize here is that these are operational tools. These are tools that run in production and they're really designed to buy you time as a developer. Um, I think this is really kind of one of the most important lessons for organizations as a whole is that when a zero day like this hits, the most important thing that you can do is really to buy your developers time to get the patching that they need done. Um, these solutions aren't perfect. They're going to have, you know, blind spots. You're going to have attackers that are going to figure out creative ways to, to uh, create variants and try to get around this, the security solutions that are there. Uh, but ultimately, if as a security team, you can buy your developers more time, that's something they'll be thankful for. Yep. Love it. Thank, thanks for that. And what other uh, mitigations have you seen uh, that were impactful? Yeah, so the, the second one here, I think this one's very specific in the context of Log4j. Um, but this actually is looking at kind of the network segmentation aspects of it. Um, and so a, a very, very basic one here was actually just having outbound uh, ACLs or firewall rules to really be able to shut down uh, the communication. Um, so the, the way that the vulnerability was actually exploited, you know, you generally had to have kind of a, a two-stage attack. Uh, there was the initial payload uh, that was really going and just making a, a JNDI call out to like a, a third-party LDAP server or something like that, where you could actually then load the payload itself. Uh, and so because this vulnerability had these two stages to it, 
this actually made outbound networking rules, just being able to say, this server should never communicate outbound to the internet to some destination that I don't know, actually an effective mitigation against this vulnerability as a whole. There is still, it's you know, again, not perfect, but at the same time, I think this is one of those kind of, you know, no brainer ones that every organization should have out there and they should put in place to begin with. And I do think that actually helped to blunt the impact of the uh, vulnerability as a whole. Yeah, I remember, uh, remember early on, the, some of the, specifically that mitigation was one being discussed quite often as, yep. a, as a way, again, to buy time, right? Um, yes. Uh, exactly. Now, the, the other mitigation that I think is also worth talking about here um, and, you know, kind of looking at some of our, our you know, recommendations from uh, NIST as uh, in particular. Um, so RASP is a technology that, you know, gained a lot of prevalence around the Struts era. Um, a lot of organizations, it's, it's kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit more because uh, I think a lot of organizations just kind of moved on to the next shiny cloud thing that they can go and deploy. But at the same time, RASP is uh, one of the mitigations that's really extremely effective. And it's actually the only mitigation that is recognized as a compensating control for supply chain vulnerabilities uh, in NIST 853 SP4. Uh, and there's a specific reason here. So I, I talked about with WAFs and WAP solutions that they're really kind of speaking and listening for HTTP requests. And they, they really only talk HTTP. They don't really care what the backend application is in. They don't care if it's a Java application or a .NET application or a Node.js application. Uh, RASP is a little bit different in that it works more commonly to how like an application performance monitoring agent works in that it's actually embedding directly in your application and it's actually watching how your code operates. And the, the brilliant thing here is that instead of relying on more of a negative security model uh, where you're saying, I don't want to see these types of things, this is a bad CVE or bad payload, uh, RASP is a little bit different in that it actually operates on a positive security model. And this is kind of like the example that I just gave around the outbound networking rules where you can say, this application should never communicate outbound to the internet over these places. Uh, similarly, from the within the application using a RASP agent, you can say things like this application only talks to these parts of the file system. It only talks to these services on the network, and it shouldn't communicate to anything else outside of that. Uh, and that's actually one thing that makes this a really good compensating control and one of the, the few solutions, I think, that can actually operate even in air-gapped environments. So that's, a, again, um, developers put integrate that into their uh, SDLC and in their build process. Um, and then at runtime, that, that's taking place, right? Yep, that, that's exactly it. So you, you basically package it with the application. Uh, you usually will inject that as part of the, uh, the CICD process. And then the thing that I love about it is it just goes wherever the application goes. And so it will go with the application through your test and QA environments. It will go with your applications to production. It doesn't matter where it's actually running. It's kind of just running uh, and humming along with it. And so it, that is, I think, a very effective mechanism. And, and we did see a large adoption of that technology after the struts vulnerability. And for a lot of organizations, especially in high security environments, uh, they relied on RASP or they rely on RASP as a way of being able to mitigate these types of vulnerabilities now and in the future. Yeah. I love uh, that you said it, it follows the app through the whole SDLC as well into, into test. Do you see organizations building use cases and uh, test scenarios and user users stories to kind of 
kind of push the boundaries and, and test the limits of, of the RASP with certain oh, I, use cases? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think what's actually kind of cool about it is it, it's one of those things where you don't need to necessarily code very specific use cases for it because if you have something misconfigured or you have an instance where it's just not going to detect something, it'll just kind of show up during your normal test cycles. Uh, but that being said, you can, you know, very quickly and easily uh, write your own test cases that are able to actually prove that it's working and doing what it says it should be doing. And, you know, you'll usually learn very quickly if you forget to say that this application, you know, logs to this part of the file system, it'll it'll warn you and tell you right away that the application is logging somewhere it shouldn't be. Any other uh, any other mitigations? Uh, so those are probably the top three. Um, certainly, we've talked about patching and some of the configuration changes that were required for this as well. Um, but you know, I, I don't think we need to spend too much time on that one. Well, so let's How talk about, about prevention. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, mitigation is great. So I, have it. I have a headache. Uh, I'm going to take a, you know, a Tylenol or not advertising for that company or any other, you know, ibuprofen or whatever you get. But what can we do as an industry? And, and that's kind of a question that always come up, at least from me. And I mm -hmm. look at the future, I'm like, are we really learning? And and I know when we were preparing for this, you know, you say, though, we, we did learn a lot. Gabby said we did mm -hmm. learn a lot. Now, I'm wondering if that's true for the industry. Is it true for the business? And that kind of blows my mind that so many, a year and a half later or whatever it is, then they may not be ready. So what what can we do there? Yeah, so with, with this one, I, I think it's best to really kind of divide the conversation into two different parts because they ultimately have a different makeup of the solutions. So um, the first part is really going to be software that you own or software that you're developing internally. Uh, this is where you kind of look at your standard SDLC or secure SDL processes that you do have, and you're looking to really go and augment them. So the first and most important part of that is you need to have an asset or application inventory. Uh, this is, uh, you know, I think at this point in time, most organizations should have this, but if they don't, it is definitely a wake up call that you need to absolutely have an inventory of all your applications and you need to know who the owners are and the people that you're contacting around them. Uh, now, within those applications, this is where it starts to get a lot trickier, is there's really two different things that you're looking at. The first one is you need to understand what direct dependencies those applications are pulling in or what libraries the application is currently using. Uh, and this is where you kind of find those first order issues where, oh, this application team did use Log4j, they're using this version. We know that they're probably going to have to patch regardless of whether the vulnerability was actually exploitable or not. We just have to get this patched. Uh, the second one, though, that I think not a lot of organizations really kind of take into account here is it's not just the direct dependencies that you pull into your application, but it's also the transitive dependencies. And so by transitive dependencies, I mean the dependencies of dependencies. Uh, and this is where it can get really, really hairy really quickly, because you, you think about you build applications and 80% of that code is going to be open source and not your code. Well, of those open source packages that you pull in, probably 80% of those is also someone else's code. And so open source really just kind of has a way of permeating itself into pretty much every uh, portion of that landscape. And you really need to understand not just what are the direct dependencies, but what are all those transitive dependencies in there. So I'll go ahead and pause there and see if there's any questions. 
I have a gazillion. Um, <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me take you here because I'm just thinking back to a year ago and then obviously we have an anniversary and another round and struts before that. And I can only imagine that the people sitting in in uh, IT ops and DevOps and, and sec ops, the first thing they do is, are we vulnerable? <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and when we had, we were talking to Gabby, she, she made it clear that the automated attacks or the attack cycles were clearly automated, right? The, a lot of it mm-hmm. came from bots, uh, bad actors figured out a way to find and test exploits and automate the payload delivery on the things they found basically taking the, the exploitation to scale and yet the response and the mitigation now one could argue that perhaps they didn't patch because they have compensating controls in other ways maybe they have a network segment and maybe they have wasp uh, rasp and and uh, wafts in place but still how how do we kind of solve that first response we have which is are we vulnerable to them in a way? And I, I presume that, that you and the team at Aperva have this research that Gabby does as insight to say, okay, we're seeing something. Let's, let's alert our customers so that we can then, I don't want to say automate, but at least help them all get a head start on what's coming their way. Yes, this is, uh, I think, a great, great conversation to have here because uh, there's uh, multiple facets to it um, and really that you can kind of look at. And so first and foremost, I I do want to strongly advocate for having a mature DevOps and CICD practice for an organization. And I think for the security practitioners listening, advocating for a mature practice in this area is great for security. Um, The faster your teams can build, test and deploy fixes, the better it's going to be. Uh, but that being said, it still doesn't tell you really where you need to focus your time and energy and effort. And I, I think the the reason why for me this story kind of starts with struts always is uh, I think struts is the one thing that really kind of tipped the industry's hand that we needed to work towards building out a, a more common language or framework for measuring what is actually made up of our software, what it goes into it. And this is, you'll hear it referred to as software bill of materials or SBOMs. Um, and the concept of this is pretty simple. It's, you know, basically you think about if you're a, a, a big like uh, energy provider and you have transformers in your environment, you get a bill of materials with that uh, big piece of hardware. And really there's no reason that software shouldn't be any different. You need to know what components make up it and what goes into it. And so. Uh, SBOMs really kind of started in earnest back in about 2017 or 2018, following the struts vulnerability. And this is something that's been driven as a collaboration between the community and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, and the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, so the NTIA. Uh, And basically what they've done is they've established really kind of the minimum standard of what information should go into a bill of materials for software. And there, there's other uh, different formats out there. It's going to be an acronym soup here, so I apologize. But uh, things like SPDX and Cyclone DX and SWID and all those different things, um, those are really kind of that first step to just understanding, you know, what is this composition or makeup of software itself? Uh, I'll pause there because there's a lot more into this one. I can take it to the next level here. Well, I think you should. Because uh, my my final question will be about the future, and I just try to envision a, 
a better future where you know all the drill we had in the past they they start getting more and more effective and and we can prevent more and more i know i'm being very idealistic here but i i, I invite you to keep sharing your thoughts uh, moving forward for sure yeah so I, I guess the next area so s-bombs were one thing i think but still at the end of the day s-bombs are really just kind of this state and time manifest of what software really consists of and it doesn't provide you with that level of granularity and detail it, it doesn't actually answer any of those questions of is the developer even aware of this? Are they actually uh, investigating this? Is this vulnerability even exploitable? Just because we have a dependency that is vulnerable, that doesn't necessarily mean mean it's exploitable. And so to solve some of these problems, uh, the NTIA has also developed a new standard called uh, VEX or Vulnerability Exploitability Exchange. Uh, And this is something where it's effectively a machine-readable format. It's all JSON, basically. And it's supposed to be able to provide a mechanism to standardize the communication between either the vendor or the open source developer and really the consumer of that software. Uh, And really, it's one of those things that's designed for at least talking about the state of the vulnerability, talking about the exploitability of the vulnerability and giving teams more information instead of having to go through this process of guessing whether or not they're vulnerable, guessing whether or not they actually have to go and patch this thing as quickly as they do so it can better prioritize all of their initiatives. And there's lots of other projects, I think, that have really come up in the last year and a half, two years Um, And they've gained a lot of momentum. So just to direct some listeners to it, uh, if you're interested in any of these things, uh, the other ones that I recommend going out and looking at is the uh, OpenSSF Foundation. Um, That's part of the Linux Foundation. It's really designed for open source software um, security. They have a number of projects that they sponsor, like SIGSTORE and DBOM and all these other acronyms, basically, that do very important things around supply chain security. And so uh, I'm really personally very happy to see the amount of work that's going into all of these different uh, projects and efforts. And I I do have hope. We're we're never going to get away from these types of vulnerabilities, but at least I have hope that we can reduce the response time and we can actually go and help teams make more intelligent patching decisions. And I love that. I love that because, you know, business yeah. need to run their businesses and uh, an impervious business is exactly this, <laughs> to, do, to do the job for them so that they can focus on what they need to do best. Sean, you just can't know everything. You can't say, well, I'll do it. No, you got to do your thing. No, it's, a, it's similar to building an app. There's an ecosystem of and a collection of components, uh, same with security. I mean, Peter, you're mentioning a bunch of groups and standards and data yeah. resources and, and whatnot that come together. And thankfully, customers in, of Imperva have you and, and Gabby and others to help them pull all of that together so they can be informed, uh, identify where and what's, what's likely uh, at risk of being impacted, Hopefully, having the, the, the technologies in place uh, to prevent those scenarios from occurring, and if they do, uh, putting in countermeasures so you can buy that time, as you said, to uh, put the patches in place where where they need to be. And I think you said it very clearly, Peter, that uh, a mature CI/CD or CDCI, <laughs> I always forget which direction, a mature program and and uh, flow in place. Uh, so that you can respond. Um, if you're scrambling 
at the last minute to the end of the year as people are heading off on vacation. Uh, it's likely not the most fun thing to to deal with. And, and of course, the business is going to feel the impact of that. So, so keep the river clean so that you don't, get, so you don't get the log all of a sudden. And, you know, <laughs> log I just jam. like to bring it back to the metaphor. <laughs> No, we forgot the logs all through here, but uh, yeah, I think the, the the takeaways for me is, as you mentioned earlier, Peter. I mean, logs are in everything, and Java and this is pretty much in everything. And I mean, a lot of times security says just don't do that, but you can't <laughs> in this case, right? These are apps that we built. They use technologies and, and and APIs and calls and do things that we need them to do, so that we can secure. Funny enough. Um, so we just need to be smart about how we how we put compensating controls and how we validate the use cases and, and verify that weaknesses can't be exploited to our detriment. So I don't know, Peter, any anything else to uh, to note? Um, anything else coming from Imperva that uh, folks should be aware of? Um, I'll, you know, I'll just go ahead. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, I, I guess just a, a quick shout out in terms of where you can find us. Um, imperva.com. Um, Gabby and her team, they publish amazing research. Um, a lot of the stats and things that she shared, we've, we've published out there. Um, and on top of that, we do publish a lot of uh, regular reports about the threat landscape. We cover bots, DDoS, um, these types of vulnerabilities. We also cover specific industries like e-commerce uh, and some of the, the threats that they face. And so uh, lots of good information that's out there. Um, anyone that's looking to connect with me, they can follow me on LinkedIn. I, I don't post terribly often, but, you know, like everyone else, I'm, I'm on there. So, yeah. Did all, you post about this... Log4j? <laughs> you know, I, I actually didn't. I, uh, I, I figured there was enough news that was going on there, and I, I really I didn't want to get in the way of the people that were really kind of on the front lines defending it and, you know, disseminating the important information out there. I was, you know, more involved with a lot of the remediation efforts themselves. So I figured my, uh, my input wasn't necessary compared to what they were providing. So not, not even a little happy birthday log for Jay when it was the anniversary <laughs> or something. Oh, it's 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 a birthday. I just I I don't want to celebrate. It's it's too know, many too many painful memories of last weekend. I, I know, but you know, the, 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 well, why we have painful memories so that we don't we don't repeat that, right? You know, we don't need to touch the fire again to know that it burns. You just should remember the first time. But this said, all the way you you just mentioned to connect with you at Imperva, of course, they will be part of the notes of this uh, part uh, two and one uh, series of conversation about yep, Log4j. Gabby's and, research. Yep, that's right. That's right. So it was great. And if you made it all the way here without listening to conversation number one, we didn't want to stop you. And uh, But now you can go and, uh, and listen to that one, which will be probably on the same page where on uh, ITSP Magazine when you find this one. So have we have we nod the log 4J down to a toothpick 4J? That's the, the question. <laughs> well, I don't know. You got we made it small. Keep sure. chomp chomp. That's what chomp, you got. Chomp, chomp. Exactly. It's more of a two by four right. at this point. All right, two <laughs> by four. we'll go with that. I think that that's good. Good progress. Good progress. Well, Peter, thanks so much, and a uh, shout out back to Gabby on the first episode uh, for joining us as well and, and bringing that aspect of this story to bear and to our friends at Imperva for uh, bringing these stories to ITSP Magazine to help 
others operationalize security in the best possible way. So thanks everybody. Hope uh, you enjoy the conversation. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you learned something new and the story made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.